Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. God is good. It's game day. We love football here. Um, I'm wearing my jersey, my Tony Romo jersey. Come on, and all the people who love Tony Romo, can I get an amen? Did I, did I literally get a boo from that? Did I get a boo? Come on, the devil is a liar, right? I want to thank Koki for this jersey. Totally old school, man. And I, I, how many Cowboy fans do we have here? Okay, God bless you. How many Packer fans do we have here? We got a few of you. Any Colt fans? Any Colt fans? Any Philadelphia Eagle fans? Really? Really? Okay. Any Washington Redskins fans? Uh, I, uh, a few hands. Okay. We would just ask you to stand and leave at this, at this time. We want to dismiss you. I do it every Sunday. Uh, any Viking fans? We have any Minnesota Viking fans? Wow. Uh, Raider Nation? Any Raider fans? Man, we just, man, it's crazy. Crazy. Did I say Niner fans? We have any Niner fans? All right. All right. And Denver Bronco fans. And then obviously, um, purposely, purposely wanted to say the last team that I loathe the very core of my being. Do we have any Seahawks fans? All right. I see Steelers. Come on. I, I, yeah, I, I can go. I can see the Steelers. Anyways, uh, man, I'm excited you're here today. We, we love, man, we love Jesus more than anything. And uh, we love, we have some food for you at the end of this uh, worship experience. Uh, if you're offended with my hat, you can email Mark Francie, right, okay? Um, this is just one, one day out of the week. Uh, we just kind of put on our jerseys. We like to have fun. Uh, we, I, I really believe God's going to do uh, a powerful work in our lives here today. If you believe that, turn to your neighbor and say, man, I, I believe the preacher. I believe the preacher. Hey, uh, so in two weeks, we got some historic news we're going to announce to the church, so please don't miss, I think it's September 24th, uh, we're going to announce to the church some big news that is forthcoming. It's going to be, as I mentioned, historic, so invite all your friends, your family, members, uh, whatever, um, bring them to church, and we got some exciting news to share with you. Uh, today, I'm going to take you through a whole chapter. You think I can do it? How many of you believe in miracles? Okay. I'm going to take you through uh, Colossians chapter 3. Before I do that, I want to thank my beautiful wife, Kelly, who preached two weeks ago on holiness. She talked about how, as a church, we're not driven by... Go ahead. Give her a hand. Man, these hats are just... Anyways, uh, she talked about we're not driven by the theology of happiness, but, but by the theology of holiness. And, uh, man, that's, that's our anthem, and we're going to anchor our lives based on that. And uh, I just want to thank you, Kel, for that wonderful message. And then last week we had Shane Grove, our executive pastor. I just love how he thinks and how he puts practical application to Scripture. He's like his dad, Bob Grove. How many of you love Bob Grove? Come on. Living legend. If you don't know Bob, you're missing out. You're missing out, people. Bob Grove is amazing. He makes me laugh all the time. Um, but I'm going to take you through uh, Colossians 3, and I, I broke, it, I broke uh, this chapter down into four sections, and uh, I'm just going to touch on every section. So we're going to get through it, I promise. Uh, we're going to reach chapter 4, and then the next few weeks, uh, we're going to finish this series. If you know anything about our expository teaching, we never finish a series, so God is on the move. We're going to finish this, and then we're going to move into uh, a Philippian series, and then all next year. How many of you excited for 2018? Okay, all of next year, we're going to be talking about relationships. I can't wait. We're going to be talking about the local church. Uh, we'll probably do an expository series out of the book of Ruth, and uh, it's going to be good. But today, um, before I actually get into uh, the text, you can actually, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Uh, if you do bring your Bibles, we're going to have it up on the screen behind me. Uh, how many of you, before I actually read this text, how many of you are sore losers? Okay, I, I, growing up, I was, I was a, sore, a sore loser. And I'm not trying to be dramatic. I think it's just that red, redhead gene. I just, I had a temper. I was super competitive. So if I lost at anything, I would weep bitterly. And, um, and I just, I don't know, I just get a little bit angry. I remember in fifth grade, I was playing basketball, and we were in the championship game. We were playing St. Mark's. 
And uh, there's a good, a good team. And uh, I remember the whole week, I was really prepared my mind and my heart for this game. I wanted to win like it was a matter of life and death. And uh, we ended up losing by uh, four points. And I remember that moment emotionally, um, and, and the Holy Spirit's healed the scars in my heart. But in that moment, I, I knew that uh, it was fait accompli. The facts of the game that we lost was, ir- was irreversible. And so uh, I, I just have this vivid memory of St. Mark's, all these um, athletes uh, run, ran to the center of the court. They're dancing, they're celebrating. And uh, your pastor, again, mine, I was 10 years old. I remember I couldn't handle my emotions, so I ran to the very center of the celebration and dancing. And I got on my knees and I raised my hands and I wept bitterly in, uh, uh, in front of them. To me, it was my offering back to the Lord. You know what I mean? And uh, I just broken. I, and, and it just, I was broken over the fact that in the annuals of record keeping, that I would always have to come back and uh, just uh, acknowledge the basic fact that I lost this game and I couldn't handle it. Well, this is, that, that emotional experience that I had is kind of a picture of how the powers felt when God won the victory through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The powers, sin itself, evil that has disfigured God's good world, uh, those shadowy things that have uh, defaced creation, those, those addictions that we have, everything that we would define as evil, uh, its power has been broken through Jesus. And we're not going back. The buzzer's already been so- um, um, sounded. Is that a, can we say that? Um, the game is over. Uh, Jesus won the victory over the powers. We have forgiveness in his name. We're marked out, and we belong to the family of God. You and I have the victory, and the victory is our faith. Uh, we win right now. No? I'll say it over here. We win right now. No? No? Okay. We'll go over here. Come on. We, we, because of the achievements of Jesus, we've won. We won. Jesus defeated the powers. And uh, it's fait accompli, which means it's an irreversible fact. The facts of our universe because of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection have been profoundly altered. Death has been overthrown. Corruption, disease, sickness, evil itself has been defeated. So we can celebrate today. And that's why we're celebrating game day. So this is the backdrop of Colossians chapter 3. And so Paul writes in verse 1, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, love this, seek the things. Everyone say, seek the things. Seek the things that are above. I just got a lot of energy today. Are you ready? It's game day. I can't wait to watch the Cowboys tonight. Woo, I'm excited. Anyways, so seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you've been raised with Christ. In other words, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you start at the top, not at the bottom. See, as followers of Jesus, man, we just don't live in Drake's world, right? We started at the bottom and now we're here. Come on, most of you, you knew that, right? We started at the bottom and now we're at the top, like through our effort, right? We got to the top, and many people believe that as we make a decision to follow Jesus, and if we really want to experience the life that God has for us, and if we want to enter into genuine human flourishing, if we want to be holy, how many of you want to be holy? If we intend to be that way, somehow we, we assume that we got to start from scratch. Like we got to start from the raw materials of our own virtue. And we got we to, gotta, through our own virtuous strength, we got to make ourselves or work our way into holiness. Well, the good news is, hey, you don't start at the bottom. If you, in fact, through faith and repentance, you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you start at the top. In other words, Jesus, the story about you is that you've been raised with Christ. So, hey, what, what, as you follow Jesus, you're not looking up trying to get over some mountain, get through some obstacle, like break this addiction in your life. If you're in Christ, you're risen with him, you're looking down on this stuff, on those addictions, on those dehumanizing habits or that stinking thinking that throws you out of God's will. You have the victory because of the achievements of Jesus. So not only that, not only do you start at the top, not only do you have to not begin at the bottom and begin with scratch, 
Paul makes it very clear the reason why you're risen with Christ is because Jesus is in heaven. Everyone say heaven. Jesus is in heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is good old-fashioned ascension talk. And ascension talk is all about sovereignty. So whenever you read scripture, how many of you love your Bibles? Come on, how many of you love your Bibles? Okay. You read your Bibles, you go through the Old Testament, and you go through the New Testament, and you see anything about someone seated at the right hand of the Father. That's all about someone possessing authority over creation. So what Paul is saying, when you see this beautiful picture of Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is in charge of the cosmos. He stands over corruption. He stands over um, creation. He stands over whether you, whether you feel like it or not. He stands over hurricanes. He stands over what you go through in life, like the quotidian things that you do, everyday lifeness. Jesus is in charge of it all. He oversees every aspect of your life, and there's nothing that you go through that lies outside the range of God being in charge. I love this, and if you're a Bible, Bible nerd, you're going to like this. This is biblical cosmology. Can you give me uh, 30 seconds? Okay, I had some, some of you shake, shook your head, but I'll give you aspirin at the end of this worship experience, all right? Uh, but this is um, biblical cosmology 101. What Paul is suggesting when he says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father is he's referencing Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, you have this... Uh, chaotic scene. It's a terrifying vision that, that uh, Daniel had. And in this scene, you have a sea. Everyone say the sea. The sea in Jewish apocalypse represented or symbolized uh, chaotic, the chaotic forces of evil or anti-creation forces. And in this terrifying vision, you have these primordial monsters emerge from the sea. You have the Philadelphia Eagles. You have the New York Giants. You have the Washington Redskins. They emerge, right? And then in the next scene, you have this one like the Son of Man who ascends to the throne and defeats all the forces of evil and sits at the right hand of the ancient of days. Paul is saying, hey, this is your story. Jesus is running the universe through self-giving love. And it's through self-giving love that Jesus exhausted all the powers of evil. That's our story. And this is important because you act out of your story. You make decisions from your story. You live your life from your story. In fact, what you do every single day is inextricably connected to what you believe or what your story is. The question is that you need to ask yourself is who is sovereign in your life? Because what we do every single day, the decisions that we make every single day flow out of who we think is sovereign. When you believe Jesus is sovereign over it all, that is when you make decisions that reflect human flourishing. When you believe that Jesus is at the bottom or Jesus is somewhere out in the space, time, whatever, if you believe Jesus is not for you, if he's not running the universe right stinking now, everything that I'm going to talk to you about right now is going to sound nonsensical. Let me just say this in another way. Jesus is not president-elect. Jesus is not king wannabe. Jesus is not the king sometime in the future. No, what Paul is saying is that Jesus right now is already ruling every single aspect of the cosmos. That includes your body, that includes your relationships, that includes your kids, your money, architect, uh, uh, beauty. Uh, it includes everything that you experience in this life. Jesus is running it all. But what Paul says is we got to make sure we got to set our minds on this. You got to set your mind on these things. This is your story. So set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He says in verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Why do you have to set your mind on Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father? Why is your baseline story that Jesus is in charge right now of the entire space-time continuum? 
that Jesus oversees every aspect of your life? Well, because we go through stuff, and if, if, if we're not careful, and if we don't take every thought captive, Jesus and who he is remains hidden to us. So set your mind on things that are above. What Paul is saying, is he's not suggesting that Christianity is about flying off this planet. Christianity is about some disembodied existence in the future. We call heaven, and that's our destiny. No, what, what Paul is suggesting is that we get our mind on this story. And as you get your mind and reorder your entire life around Jesus being in charge of it all, you'll begin to make decisions that reflect his self-giving love in every aspect of your life. So verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We have a future. No? Okay. We have a future. This is, this is like eschatological talk. This is about being people from the future. I can say without being cliche, because I hate cliches. I can say this without using hackneyed sayings, because I hate that. But I can say that we have a future and that your best days are in front of you, not because we're not going to go through anything difficult or bad in our lives. I can say that we have a future as followers of Jesus because Jesus is in charge of it all. And there will, there will be a day when God will make all things new in our planet. New heavens, new earth. Ruling, being kings and priests is the destiny of every single Christian. So we talk about, many times we talk about being a shadow of our former self. I've looked at pictures in my past, I'm like, man, I've, man, it's, you know what I mean? So we talk about being a shadow of our former self, but as a Christian, no, 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 you're not a shadow of your former self. You're a shadow of your future self. And you're working towards a goal. And because Jesus is in charge, he's bringing the, the human project or the project of creation to its intended goal. God will get you to where he wants you to be. Amen. So if that's true, then we come to verse 5. Um, Paul says, then you got to put to death. Everyone say put to death. He also says put off. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He says sexual immorality, which is where we get the word pornography from. He says impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says you got to put to death. Here, so the first thing that Paul talks about is sex in the world of Jesus. So how, how, how do we use our bodies? This is what Paul is going to be talking about. Because how you use your body reflects whether you're in line with Jesus or not. He says, put to death sexual immorality. Uh, this morning I woke up, it was about uh, 5.45, and uh, have you ever been really exhausted and you've, you've had this like uh, thought, it's like a whimsical thought that you just wish your clothes like had, became sentient, I mean they got intelligence, and they just like hopped out of your closet and they just like jumped on you and put themselves on you? How many of you would like that experience? Some of you are like shaking, no, no, I, I wouldn't like that. Or man, I just wish my toothbrush like became intelligent and walked itself up the stairs and looked at me and said, hello, Chris, you have a beautiful smile. I'm going to brush your teeth today, right? <laughs> How many of you would like that as your experience? I mean, I would. I, I just wish, I mean, I didn't have to floss. I didn't have to brush my teeth. I didn't have to put my clothes on, all that kind of stuff. What Paul is saying is that there are some things you have to put off before you put on. So, you can't, I mean, you, I guess you could theoretically wear your PJs today under what you're wearing, your jersey, but that, get, that, that gets kind of old, right? You could put your, uh, keep your PJs on and keep it under like a suit if you go to work, but over time that's going to become cumbersome. What Paul is saying is that if you want to enter into the new life before you put on love, before you put on goodness, before you put on self-giving uh, faithfulness, you have to put some things off. In fact, he says you can't be casual with sexual greed. Because if you were to strip down the roots of sexual greed or sexual experience that lies outside the covenant of marriage, at the roots of that is a loveless contempt 
any, any sexual experience that lies outside um, the covenant of marriage is rooted in the logic of consumption. Well, how do you, how do you know that, Chris? Well, uh, Paul lists off all these different sexual disorders, and he ends with sexual greed. Why? It's kind of this dramatic thing that's going on. Paul's building towards this, um, this moment, and he defines all of sexual practice under, places it under sexual greed, which is an economic word. In other words, what he's saying is if you don't use your body as God intended for you to use your body, if you engage in sexual experience outside the covenant of marriage, you will uh, consume and you will use people as objects. Sexual greed is rooted in consumption. How many of you love broccoli? Anyone like broccoli? Okay. Um, we, we have a, in, in a kind of an objective relationship with broccoli. I, I don't prefer it, but I eat it um, for the long-term benefits, right? Uh, initially, my mouth says, I hate you, Chris. But like uh, three days later, it says, I love you, Chris, right? My body's saying, it's, it's a weird relationship that I have with broccoli. It's objective in that when you consume a piece of broccoli, you break, your body breaks down all the properties of broccoli, and your body absorbs all the nutrients. You consume it. You use it up. You have no commitment. You really have no love, um, mutual respect for broccoli. You use broccoli for its own sake. There's nothing wrong with that, but if you apply that to sex outside of marriage, I'm not, I know I'm not getting a lot of amens, but just hang with me, right? If you, do it, if, you, if you do sex outside of marriage, which is a cheap parody on sex, what you're essentially doing is you're consuming the other for your own sake. Now, let me say this. This is not a warning of, uh, or a message of judgment. It's not a message of, man, God's, he's, he's about ready to throw some lightning bolts on top of your head. If you've been living this way, uh, you go home, your, your garage might be infested with rats or rodents or something like that. God's not going to arbitrarily judge you. But what he's saying is that these are um, styles of behavior that turn away from creator God. And when you go against the grain of the universe, this is not our world, this is God's world. And every act has a consequence built into it because every act has a character. So, for example, if you go to McDonald's and uh, you eat uh, a Big Mac three times a day for a month, you can tell your body that there's going to be no consequences, but your body's going to say, I need to go to the doctor. Right? So there's, there's act, there are consequences that are inextricably tied to acts. You, you can't get out of it. You, can't, you can try to go against the grain of how God has created this universe, but there is this law of causality that's woven through the very fabric of the universe. So you don't get to choose the consequences of your behavior. The behavior chooses it for you. Because this is God's world. It's not our world. You're dehydrated. You're in the middle of the ocean. And you're just, you just need some water. And you see the ocean. And you start drinking salt water. I'm sorry. The consequence is you're going to become more dehydrated. This is how this world Works And what Paul is saying, there are styles of behavior that turn away from God and they court death itself. And because these, these behaviors are rooted in loveless contempt, if you don't put them to death, guess what happens? You can't put on love and humility and goodness and kindness. I love my, my uh, grandfather. He was a rancher. Any, any ranchers here? Okay, few, Mark Francie apparently was a rancher. I don't know why I ask those questions. He always raises his hand, right? So my, my grandfather, he was a rancher. He was a farmer. He was like a farmer philosopher. In the mornings, we would talk philosophy. Then he would roll his cigarettes, and then he would go out with his 22. If you're not from, if you're not a native Idahoan, don't be offended. Take out his 22. He would go out to these, like, rock chuck mounds, and he would shoot vermins. He called them vermins. And these vermins are rock chucks. The reason why we had, it was lethal. And the reason my grandfather had to remove them from this planet was because they would get into, I'm trying to use as many euphemisms as possible. Uh, we live in such a sensitive age. Okay, moving on. 
um, these vermin would get into the, his crop, his corn, his wheat, and would destroy his crops. So he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't be casual with these animals. He, he, he had to put them to death. Like my son, my son Wesley says, Dad, can you dead that ant? He's like, he loves it, dead it, can you dead it? We have a responsibility to put to death these styles of behavior that court death. Now let me just say this really, Christians, and some of you are not gonna like this, so don't get religious on me, just go with the flow. Christians in the context of a covenant marriage should have the best sex on the planet. What Some of you are like saying, oh, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Jesus and Christianity is all about being a killjoy. We're not supposed to have sex at all. No, God invented sex, and it is good. The problem is, is when you take a good thing and you misdirect it. A good thing misdirected by definition is evil. In fact, every evil thing that you know, at the very base of it, is actually a good thing. Evil has no property. It's not a thing. It's just a good twisted so sex is a good thing in the context of marriage. And all the married people said amen. amen. And all the single people weep bitterly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. We'll pray for you. We'll pray for you at the end of this service. So I got to nerd out on you really quick, and now I'm going to move to our next section. Why is this so important? Because this is God's world. This is not our world. And if we want to move into faithfulness, if we want to move into self-giving love, if we want to love our enemies, which is what God has called us to do, we're going to have to give up these behaviors. Uh, Biopsychologists, uh, brain studies are, are, are ripe. They're abundant. You can read this. You can go online. You can read all this stuff. Biopsychologists will tell you that a sexual experience or this intimate experience releases an opiate in, in the center of your brain. And it's similar to what happens. It's actually the same thing that happens to someone who takes heroin for the first time. This opiate is released into your brain. So there's a neurochemical response or a neurobiochemical response that takes place in the center of your brain when you have an intimate experience. Why? Well, some biopsychologists will tell you that a sexual experience is designed to be like a neurochemical love potion. In other words, it's meant to be addictive. It's designed by God to bond you to somebody. It's a bonding agent. I remember I had a nightmare. I think this was a nightmare. I thought it was real. I talked to my wife. She said it was a nightmare. My son, <laughs> parents, you, you get, I mean, sometimes everything just kind of blurs together. Um, but uh, I think it was a nightmare. Uh, in this nightmare, my son Quincy got super glue, and he super glued uh, an item to his head. And I remember having to take off the super glue, and it took a while, and it ripped a patch of his, his hair out. And again, it was a nightmare. I thought it was real. I don't know what's wrong with my brain. You can pray for me. That is a picture of what happens when you make a decision to have sex with whoever you want. When you're done with that experience and you move on, there's a ripping that takes place. Why? Because sex, hear me, is a good thing. But it's not an end thing. Sex, according to every American, is an end. But it's not when you look at the Bible. As a follower of Jesus, sex is designed to bond you to somebody. It's, it's designed to create space where you can have a loving, committed, faithful relationship with one person. That it's, that's why God designed us as sexual beings. Sexual sin is not sin because it's sexual. Sexual sin is sin because we go against the grain of God's intention. Can I get an amen to that? So put it off. He says in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is the shadow side of God's love. Because God is love, do you believe that? Can I get an amen? Because God is love, he must judge everything that defaces creation. God, by definition, could not be loving if he does not judge evil. You come at my kids, I'll come after you. 
I'm not going to let you terrorize my family. I'm a good dad. I love them so much, so I'm not going to practice violence. I'm going to practice force to keep you from terrorizing my children. This is the picture of what God in heaven does with sin and every evil character, characteristic that defaces his good creation. God's wrath is not arbitrary. It's a right response of a loving God dealing appropriately with the dehumanized habits that we embrace. But even in the context of this wrath, there is overwhelming love. Can I get an amen? So he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. But then in verse 7, he says, in these you two once walked when you were living in them. And then he says in verse 8, but now. Everyone say, but now. I love this conjunction. It's Paul's favorite conjunction. He says, you must put them all away because you're a new creation. Put away sexual greed. Put away anger. Put away wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Why is Paul linking these angry speech acts with sex or these cheap parodies of sex? Because both, if you're to strip both of these things down to its root, are rooted in this obscene contempt of people. Proverbs says that when you slander somebody, you are a fool. When you go on a social media platform, even though you're right, and you say something that besmirches somebody from a distance, you are a fool. Why? Because you are besmirching the character of that image bearer. Everyone on this planet. How many people do we have on this planet? Nine billion? No? Seven billion, eight, no, it's six billion, seven billion, whatever it is, every single human, whether you like them or not or agree with them or not, are made in the image of God. And when you criticize that image, you are actually criticizing the image maker. When you get angry, you're not just, you just don't have an anger problem, you have a contempt problem. Behind every anger or anger or angry outburst is this, is this arrogance, this implicit arrogance that you're morally superior than somebody else. And Christians don't play that game. Can I get an amen? And then he continues, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Are you guys still with me? And, and have put on uh, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And Paul continues, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. Scythian here in this ancient setting, ancient world, uh, was someone who was furthest removed from civilization. He's saying, in Christ, there's no barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Everything is level at the foot of, foot of the cross. Here we have a demonstration or an expression of radical grace. Come on, you don't get into the family of, of Christ based on your moral background or your ethnicity or your race or your cultural affinity or whatever. You get into the family of Jesus because of grace and because of the achievements of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, who is the Son of God, and can I get an amen? So this is all about grace. I want you to feel this grace. I want you to know this grace. I want you to live this grace. Hey, this week you're going to experience more grace. There's always more grace for you to experience. There's always more love for you to experience. What should you expect this week? You, you should, if you're a follower of Jesus, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, you should expect more love from your creator, God. You should expect more grace, more love. We can't get, in, in, because we simply can't get our mind around how loving God is. So then Paul continues, okay, since you've put off all these things, you need to put on. Everyone say put on. You put off these styles of behavior. You put off your PJs. Now you're putting on as God's chosen ones, holy. Everyone say holy. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Holy is interesting um, because we all know it means to be separated. Uh, it means sacred. Uh, it also has in its roots uh, to have dignity. Holy means God coming and separating you for a purpose. I don't know if you know this, but we get holidays from holy. Holy holidays from holy. What I love, my favorite holiday uh, in the world is Thanksgiving. 
And what I love about it is I have, because it's such a holy day for me, um, and how many of you love turkey? Okay. Uh, I, I just have like a way. I just, I have to do it every, the, the same. I got to, I have a protocol. That's what I'll say. I have a protocol every Thanksgiving. And what I do is I got to put on my stretchy pants, right? My biggest pants that I have in my closet. And I eat turkey. And I usually watch the Dallas Cowboys lose. And then uh, I fall asleep for five and a half hours, right? And I wake up at nine o'clock depressed. That's kind of like my Thanksgiving experience, right? Like, why do I feel so weird? Why do I feel weird, guys, right? It's because you have a lot of turkey and mashed potatoes in you. Well, it's a holy day. You just, you, on holy days, you act different. There's a difference. What, what um, Paul is suggesting is that you're holy. You're different. You have dignity. Your life is sacred. Stop colluding with this world and the rhetoric of scarcity by assuming that, man, you're like 50% good and 50% bad right? Like you're, you're junk or you're, you're, you're garbage or you did this activity and somehow that defines your story and your identity. Let me just push back gently. Your story, your identity is rooted in Jesus. So if you're in Jesus, you're risen with Christ. Now, yeah, you can still have bad weeks and make horrible decisions and you need to ask for forgiveness and you need to take responsibility. Come on. But you always cannot forget that you have been separated, that you have dignity, and that God loves you. And when you move from that assumption, that's when you can put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness. That's when you refuse that proclivity to slander everybody, to go on social media and just talk trash about everything, come on, or allow yourself to collude with the spirit of this age by giving your body away to everybody else. I think the reason why people can't practice love is because they think they don't have dignity. Their assumption is not I'm holy and beloved. Their assumption is I'm unholy and rejected. But when you know you've been separated simply because of what Jesus has done, you can then put on compassion, which the roots of compassion means womb. God has a womb, and he, he feels what, what we feel. And Shane talked about this last week. You can put on kindness. You can put on humility. You can put on meekness, and you can put on patience. Let me just say this really quick about meekness. Meekness is an aspect of love. Meekness, is, I think Shane talked about this last week, is strength under control. Right? It's not weakness. We think of meekness as weakness. It's actually strength under control. For, for example, I love, how many dads do we have here? Okay. Do, I, I'm sure, and I'm just making an assumption because my dad did it with me and I, I do it with my kids. Uh, I just love to wrestle. Right? I'm sure you love to wrestle with your kids. With my boys in particular, um, our love language, it, like how we express our love is by throwing each other around the room. I love to put my, my sons in a, in a headlock and put them to sleep. I'm kidding. I don't do that. <laughs> but we love. How many of you love? I just, I love to wrestle. The problem is my boys are, man, they are big. Uh, they're going to be six foot five here probably in, in five years. And they're going to talk down to me. And uh, so, but, but it, we're in the season where we wrestle all the time. And it's getting to the point where, man, I'm getting, I'm getting beat up by two twins that charged me at the same time. Uh, one actually put my hip out. Um, one kicked me in the back of the neck, almost knocked me out. <laughs> my wife found me in the fetal position upstairs crying. <laughs> but I love to wrestle. But the thing with my, my boys, I obviously, I could take these two little twins any time of the week. But when I wrestle with them, I have strength, but I keep it under control gently moving over as one tries to ninja kick me, gently putting this one over here and keeping him there and tickling him until he cries. That's the kind of dad that I am. But as I wrestle, my strength is under control. My boys, though, they have strength, but they don't know how to control it. So they went to kindergarten last year, and at recess, I got a call from the principal three times. He's great, love him. He helped help my boys. I never went to the principal's office my entire life. My boys went to the principal's office three times as a kindergartner. Anyways, let's move on. At one point, I'm like, God, am I raising psychopaths? Uh, 
But uh, I remember uh, my boys, they didn't know how to control their strength. So they would go to recess and they'd just kick people and throw boys. And they're expressing their love. This is, all the women are like, guys, you guys are strange, right? But this is how we express our love. We hit people, right? We're talking kindergarten. They're throwing, you know, some of their buddies on the ground. And, you know, they obviously didn't understand what they were doing. And they figured out boundaries and they're doing so much better. Thank you for your prayers. But that's an example of strength out of control. You see, there's a lot of Christians that have strength, but they don't know how to control it. So they're led by their emotions and their feelings, and if, if, you, if you make a decision to follow Jesus, you cannot lead by or allow your emotions to, to lead you, to define you, to shape you. You can't act out of your feelings, act out of uh, your emotion, act out of what you're feeling. You act out of who Jesus is. You make a decision to put on love and compassion, meekness. Meekness helps to bind agape together. And then he continues in verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. How many of you know forgiveness is hard work? Come on, how many of you know that forgiveness is hard work? So Paul is saying, hey, this love project, it's not easy. Stop it with the sentimental rhetoric when it comes to love. Like love is just like some feeling. No, love is tough. If you can love well, man, I'm going to give you a slow clap. Loving well is indicative that there's a strength that God has given you. It is hard to forgive, but by God's grace, you can forgive each other. And as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, can all, so you also must forgive. There's a lot we could talk about forgiveness, but we can't do it today. Verse 14, and above all, put these, um, all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. How many thankful people do we have here today? If, if, this is no judgment here, but if you struggle with, with being thankful or gratitude, your problem is not with being thankful and gratitude. If you struggle with being thankful for something, you have a problem with scarcity. Your assumption is you don't have enough or you're defeated. It's the rhetoric of scarcity that you've bought into. And so thankful people have been able to set their minds on who Jesus is and they could defeat the logic or the, the, the voice of scarcity in their life. Thankful people know that they have enough in Jesus. No matter what. All I need to know, come rain, hell, high water, floods, difficulties, Whatever, all I need to know to be thankful is that Jesus loves me and he will work everything out for my good, for his glory. That's all I need to know. And be thankful, verse 16, and let the word of Christ, which is important, we're going to talk about this over the next few months a lot. Let it dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we've talked about status. We've talked about glory. We've talked about new creation. We've talked about ascension. We've talked about Jesus standing over creation we talked about putting off styles of behavior that corrupt us. We talked about putting on love, meekness, kindness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Thanksgiving. And now we move into a domestic situation. It kind of has a, an anticlimax for a lot of modern Western people. And this passage has confused a lot of people, especially what Paul has talked about. He says in verse 18, okay, so how are we going to change the world? So if you're risen with Christ and you're putting off all these things and you're putting on love and goodness and kindness, does that mean we got to go out and we got to make a big difference in this world? It could mean that. But what Paul is suggesting, the starting point for changing the world is not trying to change the world. The starting point for changing the world starts at home. It starts at your stinking house. With your mom, with your dad, with your babies, with your kids, with your aunts, with your uncles, with your cousins, right? With your dog, some of you, with your cats. Anyways, let's move on. So demonic. Anyways, I got, I got confused. Verse 18. Here we have this domestic situation. And Paul says, okay, this is how we change the world. We change the world by changing our home. 
This is where we practice putting off and putting on. And he says, wives, some of you, all of first service laughed at this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Many of you think that when Paul is writing this, he's saying, submit. Right? Wives, submit to your husbands. This has been so caricatured as is fitting in the Lord. What Paul is saying in reference to submit is not, oh, you have to be a victim. You got to be in the back. You're not in equal footing with your husband. In fact, Paul makes it very clear in Galatians chapter 3, there's neither male or female. What is he saying? Your gender means nothing when it comes to following Jesus. Everything is equal at the foot of the cross. And all the women folks said amen. So Paul is, what he's suggesting, within the framework of mutual respect, submission is to honor your husband. We're not talking about coming under and you got to submit and, you know, your husband can do whatever he wants. He can say whatever he wants. No, this is simply an honor thing. Wives, honor your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Paul is not suggesting is that there's like a hierarchy now. Husbands are right here, wives are right here. No, we're right here. What he's suggesting is that there's not, there's not identical roles that are played out in this domestic situation. Husbands and wives have different roles to play. Can I get an amen? I know that's controversial in our culture, but I'm gonna say it over and over. Husbands and wives have, they don't have identical roles. They have separate roles designed by God. Come on which is important to this domestic situation. This is exactly what Paul is saying. But they're equal, but they're different. Can I get an amen to that? So wives, honor your husbands because your husband is a mess. He's a mess. And all the men said amen. We're screwed up, right, Koki? We got issues. Wives are so much smarter than, than husbands. Anyway, so he moves on to verse 19. Then he says something. This is where it gets revolutionary. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There's not one instance of a pagan moralist who ever says anything like this. Every pagan writer in this ancient Near East setting wrote about how wives and children and slaves had to simply honor masters and husbands. In fact, the husband had absolute control in this Mediterranean world over his domestic situation. Divorce, if you don't know this, if you think divorce is bad now, divorce was a a pandemic uh, 2,000 years ago. Husbands, because they had absolute power, could divorce their wife if they cooked the wrong meal. It's crazy. They had absolute power to designate life and death even over their children if they didn't like the sex of the baby. Husbands, pagan fathers, would cast their child out onto the street. What Paul does here is he subverts patriarchy, this absolute control of husbands, this domineering, authoritarian, totalitarian control of the family. And he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This evokes Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This people, pagans would have laughed this off as unrealistic. Paul is providing practical guidelines on how to subvert patriarchy, but also reflect the goodness of God in the home. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Verse 20, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And he says in verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Uh, we, fathers, we have a responsibility to protect our kids from ourselves. Get an amen. We have a responsibility to love our children. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I love this. And I, I'm closing now and I want to pray for you. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance or the life of the age to come as your reward. You are serving not man, you're not serving a boss, you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I, I, I come and I preach most Sundays, and my responsibility is not to give you what you think you need. 
my responsibility is to give you what I feel like Jesus is speaking to me about. I'm not here preaching to please anyone in this room. Know that I love everyone in this room. I love you so much. I think we have the best church in the world. I think we have the best staff in the world. I think we have the best worship team in the world. I think we just have the best people in the world, and I love you guys, but I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please Jesus. That's what God has called me. That's what God has called everyone in this room. Wherever, we, wherever we're at, at our place of work, whether you feel like it's trivial or unimportant, we are called to serve and to please Jesus, who is our master. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Amen. So I'm gonna, I wanna pray now. I wanna pray that God would do a fresh work in our home. My dad used to tell me, Chris, I don't know much about boat technology. I don't know much about like the laws of buoyancy. I do know if you're in a boat and you're in the middle of a storm and if the weather, the rain, the wind, whatever the water gets into the boat, you start to lose buoyancy. The more water, the more weather that gets into the boat, uh, the more your chances of sinking takes place. It's kind of a picture of how our home should be. Your home is like a boat. And it's designed to be a refuge from the storms of this world. And we have a responsibility as parents to keep the storms from coming into the house. Because if your children grow up, they go to school and they they experience whatever they experience, they're in the storm, right? And what they need to come back to and what you need to come back to is not another storm. You need to come back to a safe place, a refuge. And I'm going to pray that God would make our homes a refuge where our children will flourish, where our marriages will flourish, where our families will flourish. And as our home life flourishes, guess what happens? That's when we change the world. If you're screaming at your kids, you ain't, and you get up and you preach, you're not changing anything. Can I get an amen? You're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at on TV, and then you go to your work, you start preaching Jesus. Again, no one's perfect, I get it. But man, you go and you're preaching Jesus, but you're looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at. Come on, you're not putting off, and you're opening the door to chaos. So I wanna pray for our homes, if that's okay. I'm gonna pray that they would be places of refuge and buoyancy. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.